everyone. Welcome back to Vicious Cycle, the podcast about periods and the people who get them. I am a Koblost, Kate Elston. I'm also a Koblost, Meg Trowbridge. I'm also a Koblost, Meg Hayes. Welcome, everybody. Life is good. No, it's not. It's just... Life is, it's I mean, it feels a little better in non-Trump's America. Yeah. He still thinks it's Trump's America. A lot of people still think it's Trump's America, but the books say otherwise. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I don't know about y'all, but uh, my, there was such a brain fog I had that I didn't even realize, like basically from March on. And there was something about just like having the election pass that I'm just like, oh, I feel like myself. It's kind of insane. I have so much energy now. Like, I, I didn't think it was taking up that much real estate in my brain, and it totally was. Yeah, it's amazing how the 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 date of November third was just looming yes. for like four years. Yes. Truly, <laughs> like. Oh. Um, but I will, you know, reminder to all listeners: like the fight isn't over. Yeah. Like, literally, even in a couple months, there's a Georgia runoff for the Senate that will determine what Joe Biden can get done as president. I've already been phone banking for. Um, Reverend Warnock. So everyone should do what they can to get Reverend Warnock, Raphael Warnock, and John Ossoff elected to the Georgia Senate. Let's do so this. Make it, it happen. Blue. And then after that, then after that, we got. Let's make sure our people aren't being bad. <laughs> Let's keep our people accountable. Yeah, keep our people progressive. Yeah. Um. Cool. So, listeners, we are so excited because today we have a return. I was almost going to say blessed. We've never called a, a guest a blessed. A blessed We've called bleeder. them very important bleeders, VIB. And this is maybe the most important bleeder oh my God. of all time because she has been the guest on our most listened to episode of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, she knows what she's talking about. Her name is Dr. Kate White. A.K.A. Dr. Kate. Dr. Kate. She is the vice chair of academics in the department of OBGYN at Boston University. Um, You might remember her from season two where she answered all of our questions over like two and a half hours, which we turned into two episodes. And so this will also be two episodes. She was so sweetly. So sweet. And we had so many people reach out being like, how can I see her? Does she know other people? Can we clone her and put her in every state? Can she teleport? She's Amazing. Um, Dr. Kate also runs a miscarriage clinic for people experiencing pregnancy loss of all kinds. And she's the author of the upcoming book, The Miscarriage Guide, which we talk about either in this or the next episode. I can't remember, but it's... You're going to have to listen to both. You're going to have to listen to both and you'll want to listen to both. And in this episode in particular, we get into political stuff. We're talking, you know, she gives us some really good words of wisdom re- the Supreme Court in the United States and the fight that's coming up. We did shoot that or we um, recorded this before the election, but what she had to say was so, so uh, mobilizing, but also reassuring. Um, she takes our questions that we had from previous episodes this season and last season, including our episode on cervixes, male birth control, IUDs, syncing up. Like we, she just kind of like rapid fire answers our dumb, dumb questions. <laughs> Things that we've probably learned before and just can't retain. Yeah, she's like, you talk, you covered this. You <laughs> like are idiots. <laughs> um, she also enlightened us about a new type of birth control for vagina havers, which was really, really cool. Um, and there's so much more in this episode. So definitely stay tuned. Um, what did you guys think about our interview with her? I mean, it just felt like a a warm hug. Like, you know. 
Picking up right where you left off. Seeing an old friend and it's like you saw them yesterday. It really, it was. She just reassures your anxieties super quickly. Like she's really good at acknowledging your experience. Like Meg and I talked to her about some things I think that Meg was going through. And she said, you know, I don't know if that was the case, but I also don't want to, you know, disavow or deny your experience, dismiss Mm -hmm. your experience. Um, So she's just a really, she's, like bedside manner doesn't even begin to to cover like what she brings to the bedside. Um, she's just so uh, warm and generous, and I think that shows in the episode. And I think these questions are, you know, you know, we're we're growing, we're evolving. We know what a period is now. <laughs> okay, so the questions are Brag a much. little, you know, a little more specific maybe than the last time when the last time we were just like. What tissue? What are labias? <laughs> you know, just hold up a picture. What's this? What is this? Uh, so, yeah, yeah, this is yeah. Th- this episode we get into a lot of uh, yeah specific questions from our research. So, longtime listeners, you'll you'll recognize some of the questions that we've had. Um, if you're new to the podcast, this is a great place to start. Mm-hmm. We also encourage you to listen back. We have fun doing our own bleed search which is what we call research. Um, so, yeah. Um, before we get to Dr. Kate, though, we got an, an hilarious, a hilarious phone call Fantastic. Um, that we have to play. Um, it's a doozy. Here we go. Hi, Vicious Cycle. This is dear friend of the pod and actor from Vicious Cycle, the musical, Alyssa. Calling 9106 Uterus <laughs> to tell you my IUD story. Um, little background, just listen to the IUD episode by Meg T. Great job, ladies. Wanted to just plug uh, a positive IUD experience. Um, I'm one of those success stories that feels rare because we often just hear about the negative experiences, which truly suck. Um, so I had a Skyla IUD for three years, and then when I got her removed because she expired, I had another one put right in. So I just had my second Skyla removed. Um, she also expired, and I chose not to put another one in because sometime within the next year, my husband and I are going to try to conceive. So I wanted to see what my cycle was like. So had it removed about a little over five weeks ago and um, had a little bit of spotting afterward. And honestly, the worst thing that's happened to me in my whole six years of IUD use, which was great. I did not get a period that whole time. Amazing. Um, No side effects. The worst thing was when she removed um, the second one, she had to pull twice, which was not pleasant. But here I am. And so um was expecting a period sometime around the end of October. And when cycle day, like, 33, 34 came around, I was thinking, huh, maybe I won't get a period this time. Um, you know, it can take a little while to regulate that. So it's Halloween morning, lying in bed, um, husband sleeping next to me, and I go to push out a fart, as you do. Like you do. And instead of pushing out a fart, I shot out a nice, stream of bright red blood (laughs) there she was back in full form (laughs) so i waddle quickly to the toilet and sit there and let this gush of blood just come streaming out of me and uh remember what it's like to bleed again 
Wonderful. Fantastic. What did I do? Immediately texted Vicious Cycle. <laughs> Alyssa, I love you so much. I love you so <laughs> I just love you. Morch. Oh. Wow. Um, I believe that's what they call a blart. Yeah. You've never blarted? <laughs> it's called a Paul blart, Kate. It's called a Paul blart. <laughs> <laughs> you Paul blarted. <laughs> All over your mall. Oh, man. Wow. What a saga. What? Yeah. And I mean, part of it really feels like vindication because Alyssa's had a perfect period for far too long, meaning she basically didn't have one. <laughs> so, you know, welcome to the world. OK. But I think to not have a period for six years like that to me still feels like how do you not know that you're not pregnant? I know that like IUDs are very, very, very reliable, yeah. but I also know someone who got pregnant with an IUD. So yep, me too. that just to me, that worries, that worries mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm paranoid. Yeah. Alyssa, you, Godspeed, Godspeed on your non-IUD journey. Yeah. Let us know how it goes. Let us know if you. If you Paul Blard anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let us know about the Paul Blarts of the world. Um, shall we get to Dr. Kate? Let's, Let's do, do it. it. Dr. Kate, we are so excited that we get to chat with you again virtually. I am so excited. My husband asked, how long are you going to be on this call? I said, oh, oh, at least a couple of hours. Don't expect <laughs> to see me again for a while. As long <laughs> as it takes. <laughs> We got years it. worth of questions. Wait, what, when is the last time we actually, was it like 20, late 2018? Um, early it was 2019? Early 2019. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So a year Feels and a like half. a million years ago. Yeah. Has anything changed for you guys? Anything, anything <laughs> no. happened last year? <laughs> More of the Just same. The fabric of my reality. <laughs> Speaking of current events first, um, Dr. Kate, how you doing, uh, during COVID, are you practicing? Are you seeing patients? What's what's new with you <laughs> this year? Yeah, I've uh, been a bit of a roller coaster since March 15th was when the world shut down. I was actually giving a presentation at another hospital when I found out that morning that schools were closed. So kids came with me to the other hospital with screens. Of course, this is the exact time you pull out the screens and say, just sit over here while mommy's talking to the nice doctor. Yep. <laughs> Watch your shows quietly. Exactly. Um, So at first it was a little bit insane. Now it feels like we have established a new rhythm. So a lot of us are doing a combo of working from home and working in the hospital. So we're seeing patients both in person for visits that need an exam or need something in person and doing a lot of telemedicine for the rest. So it's nice to not have to commute every day, although the working from home in a house full of people things still seems to be a skill I'm still learning. But um, but it feels like everyone's sort of adjusting at this point. When you do see patients virtually, are you, what, what, what kind of things are you discussing with them? And do you have to, like, is it awkward because your ch- children are around and you're asking people about like the, the length of their cervix or something? <laughs> But what's funny is that one of the clinics that has kept going is I have a miscarriage clinic. And so I'm Mm. talking to patients either in the middle of a miscarriage at the start of one or at the end of one. And so I make sure that the kids are are nowhere to be seen behind thick doors. And I really try to get patients on camera to use Zoom for calls like this. And when they do, they'll often pull their partners in, which is kind of nice because male partners don't tend to like to go to the gyno. Too many 
too many women, too much estrogen around. They don't want to go unless their partner's pregnant. Everyone's really excited to go when there's mm. a baby involved, but just for regular appointments, not so much. And so I've actually gotten to talk to couples a bit more than before, which is actually kind of nice. And I think as long as I acknowledge on the phone or on video how bizarre this is that I'm meeting someone this way for the first time and that this is what a doctor visit looks like in 2020. Everyone sort of has that nervous laughter in the beginning and then kind of get right into it. So I think a lot of patients have gotten accustomed to it faster than maybe they thought they would have. That was actually one of our questions is, do partners tend ever come in? Because we had a friend who had her partner come in when she was getting an IUD just to kind of include him in their, I don't know, family planning. Um, and we were wondering if that is a common occurrence because her doctor initially was like, you don't need him. He's going to faint or something. Men are weak. <laughs> so we, I think we, I had never even thought of that as an option to like bring a partner into that situation. Yeah, in the before times, as we call them, we really sure. encourage partners to come a lot for any kind of visit, whether you are struggling with the chronic illness you have a lot of questions for, mm. whether you're going to have a procedure that's painful, and we really encouraged it. Not all women brought their partners because they weren't sure how supportive their partner would be, so often brought a good friend or their sister or mm. someone else, which was really nice. Yeah. Um, sometimes I would be talking to the sister and the patient and the sister by the end of it would say, I think I want an IUD too. I think I'm going to book an appointment with you because <laughs> seeing you know, the whole experience um, as opposed to just reading blogs about it, you know, made it more right. real. Um, now our office I think is like many where partners and support people are not allowed. You're not allowed to bring right. in kiddos if you have any other option and no other support people, which sucks on so many levels. Yeah. yeah. I it, I haven't been able to bring Carl to anything except for the 20 week ultrasound, which I wonder if they just did that because it's such like a momentous thing. And or maybe we in San Francisco in that moment, we were like lowering cases. So they opened. I don't know. But it was nice to have him there. I think they're trying to make very small exceptions. And that mid pregnancy yeah. anatomy scan, you get to find out what the if it's a boy or a girl, all that stuff. Um, they're trying to allow partners in. But as case rates start to go up, I would not be surprised if even that stops soon. Right. What do you think about the likelihood of a partner not being in the delivery room? I think that given the completely appropriate outcry the first time when hospitals mm -hmm. tried that, that that's not going to come back. I mean, there's yeah. evidence that people are healthier when they are supported in labor particularly yeah. black women and women of color. So mm -hmm. to take away support people actually puts people at risk. So there's the whole risk of the Rona, but then there's the risk of the complications of childbirth and after. Right. And we realize we can do it safely. I mean, it's not a happy experience. So like what you might find is that Carl's going to go with you and will not be allowed to leave your room. We've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you can't get multiple people. You can't have people come and go, which for your first baby is fine. But, you know, when you have like one at home already, that's a little complicated. And then you're trying totally. to figure out, right, do you stay with the new one and your partner or are you home with the first one or the other kids? So it's not simple, right. but I don't think he's going to be kept from your side. That's good. Before we go on, we have a lot of questions about IUDs and um, so much stuff to talk about. But we are recording this before November 3rd. 
the episode <laughs> will come out after the election. And so to any listener listening, uh, hi from the past. Who knows what is happening? But in case... I don't know. I would just love, I think our listeners would love just like words of wisdom from Dr. Kate when it comes to reproductive rights going forward. We know that the Supreme Court might be swinging more conservative. We don't know who the president will be to lead that, you know, next couple of years. But do you have any words of wisdom for our listeners considering all that? These have been dark times for those of us in women's health, for sure. And I won't sugarcoat it for the listeners because I don't for patients either. It's it's going to get rough. I think that the Supreme Court is absolutely going to get more conservative. And one of the things we are going to see is even further restrictions on reproductive health access. And that's the whole spectrum. That's not just abortion. That's contraception. That's IVF. That's all kinds of things that are not believed in by particular members of, of the right. So we are not going to be able to look to the courts, I think, in the future to secure our rights. What's going to happen is going to be state-by-state advocacy. And your rights are going to depend on where you live. Because honestly, as a lot of listeners probably know, that's already happening. It's not like we are in the middle of reproductive health nirvana right now, where everyone has equal access to everything. Already, people are seeing rights restricted because states have passed so many restrictions against abortion and sometimes even contraception. So I think it's going to be a local advocacy kind of efforts that are needed. Um, right now, your listeners can't see, but I am wearing my Elizabeth Warren, you don't get what you don't fight for t-shirt. Nice. I like that. And I feel I like, like it is that a lot. It is a reminder that you don't ever get to sort of rest on your laurels. Rights once they're won still need to be defended and fought for. And so I don't think the fight is over. I think it's just shifting ground from it always being at the Supreme Court level to more local advocacy, which actually is probably a lot easier for a lot of people to do. The idea of marching on Washington, although I was there for the first Women's March after Trump's inauguration. I was is, too. Yay! Was it, <laughs> right? Super powerful and empowering but you can't go to D.C. all the time, right? People have kids and jobs and lives and stuff. But your state reps, like, it's a lot easier to work closer to home. Yeah. yeah. And it's more impactful because you know the people, you know the community. Um, I spent the summer in my hometown and I ended up doing more advocacy work than I have, like, in my – or, like, more activism and protesting than I have in my whole life. And we live in San Francisco. But there's there's also this feeling in San Francisco like everyone's on the same page, right? So we can just like go to brunch because like what is there to talk about? <laughs> um, everyone agrees, but you know we we have our own issues here, so it's just figuring out you know how do we make change as fast as possible. Different arguments work in different places, and I would yeah. say to the sisterhood in the blue states where we're just working to shore things up and even make them better, is there's a lot of advocacy that you can do to support people in other states with other battles too. Um, mm. And I feel like when some women's rights are threatened, all women, all you know, folks with uterine, you know, everyone yeah. is sort of at risk, right. and yeah. so it benefits us all to stay in the fight no matter where we live. Okay, well, listeners. Go march and donate and all the things. Keep going. I love Keep that, like, like we said, this will come out after the election. I almost want to have, like, concession and acceptance speeches, you know? Like, we, <laughs> we reject this. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but let's move on to some questions we've had from recent episodes this season and the and season three. We have so many to get to. Um, I mean, I don't know. I'll start. I'll just start with this one because it's number one on the list. We did an episode on uh, menstrual synchrony, <laughs> menstrual synchrony, whether or not periods get closer together when people that bleed are together more often. Um, what's your take on all this, Dr. Kate? Do people sync up? So if you had asked me in college, I would have said absolutely yes, because it very much felt that me and my roommates were always cycling at the same time. But I wanted to you know, have my doctor hat on before the episode, and so I did some research, and it seems that the data is conflicting, that there are some studies that show that people have a greater than even chance of cycling with the people that they're with, so meaning it's, you beat the odds, it doesn't seem to be random, but other studies show that it is just random variation, that sort of like that number that how many people you have to have in a room before two of the same birthday, right? It's something, it's like a lower number than you'd think that with periods that is only four weeks in a month on average and that you're probably going to be cycling with a lot of you know people around you no matter whether you're living together or not. So, so it's not super clear, to be honest. Yeah. Because we, yeah, I think we sort of landed on like, it's probably not like, true but like isn't it fun to think that it is yeah like <laughs> you know um and then just a follow-up on that because i know that a lot of people in that believe this also believe that it has to do with like your hormones uh, affecting people around you so it's not you know so not necessarily that you'll pull someone's period closer but that you'll just like affect their cycle somehow and we were told recently on a we were did a talk with a an organization this wasn't recorded so the listeners haven't heard this but um that sometimes if you're in a delivery room, uh, people like nurses or doulas, some believe that the amount of hormones in the room because a, a woman is birthing a child can affect their cycle or if they're trying to conceive could help. I don't know. There, I don't know. Have you heard anything like this? Like being in a delivery room makes you suddenly fertile or infertile? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even the men, the men start having like ovulating. I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. You know, I haven't, but as I say all the time, women's health has been notoriously understudied. So just because there's no evidence that says that there's this connection does not mean that there might not be. And we certainly know that the mind body connection is real, especially things like stress, right? Throwing off your periods. And I don't know if that could work in a positive direction of being filled, if being in a room filled with oxytocin, right? The bonding hormone could actually help. I like to think that that's a, a possible thing. I also think about the way that women used to deliver with midwives, you know, surrounded by other women while all the men outside the hut. I, I love that mental image of everyone coming together and the idea that it might actually be good for everyone's health. So no data yet, but oh, that'd be fun to study. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder. That would be a good question. Just ask a bunch of nurses that work in delivery, because like I'm sure they could tell you, like, oh yeah, that's definitely a thing, or oh no, that's never happened to me. It's like how old wives' tales actually have some some legitimacy. It's just they've never been studied. It's like they're old for a reason. It's because they've been like the information's been passed down from generation to generation. Another thing that came up in an episode. Uh, was Kate did some research on male birth control. And so we're very curious what you think is, because we know some are in the work, some are being tested. 
some people are against them because of the side effects on men. Uh, Kate, Dr. Kate just had a nice little eye roll there. (laughs) (laughs) Want to flag that? As did we. Audio medium. Um, So I'm just curious, your thoughts. Like, do you think male birth control down the line could be a reality? And do you think it would be adopted by people? So I, I absolutely think it's going to be a reality. And there is a trial that is fairly far along of a testosterone gel. So not a pill, not an injection, something men put on their skin. And there are couples enrolling right now, particularly in California, for the study where couples say they're going to use this as their only method for a year to check out the effectiveness of it. Male birth control has been really hard to achieve because it is so much harder to block 20 million sperm than it is to block one egg without side effects, which yes, always induces an eye roll in me, like back in my head, teenage eye roll style. But but it is real, the hormone levels required to sort of suppress that much sperm. So the fact that we've got products actually going into what are called phase three trials is really exciting. And it means that you all will see it before the end of your reproductive years. I will not. I am probably three <laughs> years from menopause. You all probably will. Um, But I will tell you what is challenging about male birth control is a woman has to give up the control of contraception to her partner and Mm -hmm. has to trust and have faith. And not, I'm not talking about reproductive sabotage right now about people, you know, people not being on the same page and wanting different things about getting pregnant. I mean that even if your partner also does not want to get pregnant, you are trusting that he is going to do the thing every day. And as most of us who have ever taken a pill every day or tried to take it every day know, it's really easy to forget. For us, the consequence is we get pregnant. The consequence for them, though, is nothing for them. I'm not, my husband is incredibly reliable. I adore him to pieces, and he and I have always been on the same page around pregnancy planning. I don't know if I would have been able to give up the control to him, right? So I think it's going to work for some couples. Will it work for everyone? Probably not, but no method works for everyone. So, hey, it's about time to add this to the menu. To at least have an option. Yeah. yeah. Or, like, to have two two versions of birth control going at once, you know? So right. it's like a, a backup. Hey, dual method use is not talked about nearly enough. The idea of using two methods at the same time, which gets you near-perfect control, um, this can absolutely be one of those two. Uh, so we recently had a listener call in and say that she, um, went to the gynecologist with her grandmother and that her grandmother hadn't been in a while. And it got us thinking, I think there was kind of like this, this understanding for us that maybe once you hit menopause, you're like, that's done. Everything with this old uterus is out the window. Um, (laughs) and we're wondering what, do gynecological checkups look like post-menopause? And how, and how often do you have to? Yeah. yeah. I want to say that once the baby making is done, it does not mean that you stop being a person who, del- who deserves <laughs> full-on health care, right? Like, I care about your parts, even if you're not necessarily going to use them the same way that you did when you were 30. So exams, for the most part, look the same in terms of, You still need breast exams. You still need pap smears until you're about 65 or 70. You need pelvic exams, checking out your ovaries, making sure everything feels okay. But even more important than the exams are the conversations, I think, about your bladder health, 
which, you know, I hate to tell you, as we get older, starts to become actually an issue, especially after pregnancy. Um, also, sex lives, especially after menopause, can start to, you know, issues can come up that didn't come up before. And so even more important than disrobing and getting checked out by your gyno is the conversation about your health that will happen. And as new issues sort of come up over your lifespan, you want to be able to still have a, a relationship with someone good that you can talk to about all this. So you absolutely do not stop going for quite a long time. So you mentioned that past 70, you don't necessarily need pap smears. Is there a research-based reason for that, I assume? Yeah, if you've had normal PAPs all your life, had your screening when you were supposed to, by the age of 70, the overall take is because it takes so long for HPV to cause an infection and then cause cancer, you're probably likely to die of old age, so to speak, before cervical cancer would get you. And so if your PAPs have been normal to 70, you're probably fine from that perspective and don't need to get them anymore. Let's do birth control. Um, so we uh, interviewed this really awesome person that um, that invented a menstrual cup. And we were talking about how back in the day when diaphragms were more popular, gynecologists would like measure and like shape them to your personal body. We're wondering, does that still happen? And could that be a thing for menstrual cups? Diaphragms have been slipping down the popularity ladder, you know, in recent decades. It's, I would say I get one or two patients a year now who want a diaphragm. There are two diaphragms left on the market. One requires fitting, one does not. So the Kaya diaphragm, you used to be able to get it off of Amazon. I was looking this morning. It's currently not available, but you can buy it online without a prescription. And it's one size fits most. With diaphragms, they often needed to get fitted because sperm are sneaky, right? And it needs to fit completely well in a way that a menstrual, like blood drops are not quite as sneaky as sperm. Not that you want to stay in your clothes, right? But if the menstrual cup or the disc doesn't fit 100% to every millimeter of your vagina, it's going to be okay. I think fitting in theory sounds really nice to get something that really is fitted to your, in size to your body. But if you need to go to a gyno or to a nurse practitioner to get something fitted, it's a huge barrier to access that method, right? So like one of the best things about menstrual cups and discs is that you can just order them. You can just get them. No one has to accommodate you and you have to wait for two hours to see somebody and then get a prescription. You can just do it. And so I think that is a huge selling point of those products. It's probably expensive if you have to keep trying on different sizes and that's the bummer of it. But in general, I think not having to go to a provider for something is probably better. Yeah, I guess the only I think that's the that's the thing, though, is that they're expensive. So to know you've gone to a gyno who even just like can go, oh, looking at your vagina, you're more suited for this brand, mm -hmm. you know, or this size, um, which I think is because we were the three of us have been lucky. We've been shipped free samples of, you know, diva cups and um the flex disc salt, and stuff. Yeah. Salt okay. cup, which I haven't tried yet. I still have to try um, eventually. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the thing is like we were able to have all these like, you know, options. But it's yeah, 
not easy. It's really strange because the contraceptive reps from the drug companies come to doctor's offices a lot with as much swag as you're legally allowed to take, trying to you know, encourage you to learn about their products and prescribe them. I've never, ever been approached by the menstrual product industry. Hmm. And I would love to have samples in my office that I can sterilize the same way what we did with diaphragm fitting. I had a whole box of diaphragms of different sizes. They all had a hole punched in the middle. So no one could like take one. Take it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Same thing with menstrual products, right? You just punch a hole in the middle and then you just sterilize it in between people and to be able to try it. I think people would love that. And no one's no one's ever approached. So I think it's a big flaw in their oh, marketing let's strategy. Make this happen. Let's talk to Jane let's about it. Let's do it. Because I would love to figure out a way to use menstrual cups with my weird vagina. And then also, if it does, <laughs> if you feel like you're scared and it's not it's not coming out, it's not coming out. You're right there with the gyno. Right. From what my little research I've done, it seems like a menstrual disc and a diaphragm are very similar. Do they fit hmm. similarly? Do they insert and tuck in the same way is it like kind of the same idea it's just one is block and sperm that's my understanding is that with regards to under the pubic bone and behind the cervix like the the layout of the vagina so to speak is the same just i think the the fit is going to be probably tighter with a diaphragm i wonder like i don't even know what the success rate is of a diaphragm is it fairly low and that's why it's fallen out of favor yeah, it it works better when you put spermicide in it. So mm. it works better as a twofer. It's got a little it. messy, right? So now you've got this disc. Now you need to load it up with cream and you need to get it inside sometime before you have sex. And methods that are linked to sex itself are not quite so popular because you either have to plan ahead or it you know, quote-unquote ruins right. the mood, which is why the methods where you can just be taking it all the time or using it all the time and don't have to actually like halt things to go take care of the birth control are more popular. Um, they're roughly 78 to 84% effective. So, Ooh, yeah, that's lower. Not awesome, yeah. But for people who really like all natural methods, who want no hormones, who don't want a copper IUD, there aren't a ton of options left, and diaphragms are one of them. Well, since you just mentioned it, uh, IUDs, um, we did an episode last season um, that I kind of ran with because uh, out of the three hosts, I'm the only one who's had experience with an IUD. And my experience wasn't great, so it was kind of a um, negative episode on IUDs. <laughs> And uh, quite a few people reached out being like, okay, just like you totally scared so many people from IUDs, <laughs> probably like that's not the best, you know? So professional person who knows lots of things, what is your stance on IUDs and what should people know going in? So I would say that IUDs are not for everyone, that for people who want one, they can work incredibly well satisfaction rates overall are higher for IUDs than most other methods of birth control. But again, they're not going to be for everyone. And you guys are sharing your personal experiences. I think that's what the listeners tune in for. Um, so I can give a, like a broader view of how a lot of people will have okay experiences. There are also ways you can place it that are less painful. There are medications you can take to ease the adjustment period. But sometimes it just kind of doesn't work for you. 
And sometimes one IUD would work and another one wouldn't. But unlike changing a birth control pill prescription, which is really easy to do, changing out an IUD a little bit more involved and not a lot of people are kind of down for that. But it is one of the set it and forget it methods. Where once it's in, you don't need to do anything. So I'll joke, you get to have sex like a man without worrying about getting pregnant. That's how they get to have sex all the time. Um, you don't have to check it. There's no maintenance required. Um, the hormonal IUDs will often make your periods lighter and less crampy, which means they are excellent for endometriosis symptoms. They're excellent for bad menstrual cramp symptoms. Um, they can cause irregular bleeding. They can cause spotting for quite a while, which can be really annoying. Um, but for some, you know, again, for some people, they're really fantastic. Is it possible that Meg T, because Meg T had a ton of yeast infections, right, Meg, after you had your IUD yeah, in? Like kind of nonstop? Second one inserted. Okay. Can I ask if it was the copper or the hormonal, Meg? Hormonal. Yeah, you know, in the studies, there was no evidence that people who used it had higher risk rates of infection with yeast or with BV, you know, any of the vaginal infections. But never deny anyone's experience, right? Um, there's still a lot we don't know, but I don't know if that would happen again if you were to ever try it. I also, in addition to my miscarriage clinic, I also have a recurrent vaginitis clinic for people who get these infections over and over. And IUDs don't seem to be one of the causes of that. It's all kinds of other things, including a lot of bad luck. Um, but again, I don't want to take away from what you experienced. Every doctor I've talked to has kind of been like, I just don't think there's a connection there. I'm I, because I'm a, a damn sleuth um, and just have had so many weird things happen with my body, like it's becoming clear that maybe uh, somehow my fallopian tubes are blocked. And so I'm like wondering if somehow I got like PID and that was like related to infections and now I have scar tissue and I'm just like, how, how, any, but I, I love blaming it on the IUD because that was just, a <laughs> well, and you got it, you got it taken out and then they stopped, right? I mean, yes, but I also like, like we said, like the mind and body are very. Sure. It may have been like the trauma of, <laughs> of getting it in, in the first place. Just, it, I think I'm finding more and more people who are saying, you know, something's aren't easily explained. I'm like, yeah, that seems Damn to be it. A, common, a common theme. And that's highly unsatisfying, right? Yeah. To hear that. <laughs> so Meg, you said PID, pelvic inflammatory disease. What do you, so what is this? Do you think that maybe you've had that? Well, I know that's one explanation for why you might have scar tissue in your fallopian tubes. And so I, I Dr. T, do you mind going into what PID is and how you might get it? Yeah. PID is the worst version of an STI is one way to think about it. That instead of an infection being limited to your cervix where you get discharged in the vagina and you feel kind of crappy, it goes up the uterus, out the fallopian tubes, and actually can cause inflammation throughout your whole pelvis. You can have symptoms when this happens. Most commonly, it's fever and chills and nausea and a whole lot of bad pelvic pain. You can sometimes even be admitted to the hospital for the management of it because the symptoms are so bad. It is possible, though, to have no symptoms. And that is when we start to see it associated with chronic pelvic pain and infertility issues because of the scarring it can cause in the fallopian tubes. 
PID is most often caused by an STI, like chlamydia or gonorrhea, but not 100% of the time. It can be caused by bacteria that's in the vagina. We're not sure why bacteria that are normally minding their own business and causing no problems would all of a sudden wreak such havoc throughout your pelvis, but we know that it's possible. So it's hard to go based on symptoms alone. A lot of people will get diagnosed with PID at the time of a laparoscopy surgery that they may have for an appendix or for their gallbladder or something else where all of a sudden you can see the scar tissue. We talk to the patient after and say, did you know you had PID? And the patient had no idea. So it's the whole spectrum from not knowing at all to getting so sick it lands you in the hospital. Could Meg have gotten a bacterial infection from the insertion of her IUD? It's possible, but rare. We know that every time you do any kind of procedure where you are going through the vagina into the cervix, into the uterus, there's a small risk of infection. And so we tell people the three weeks after an insertion are the time to look out for, because if you're going to get an infection, that's the window you're going to get it in. After that, you don't have any increased risk of PID. So IUD users sort of just minding their own business out there don't have any increased risk, but there's always a procedural related risk. But most of the time with the IUD, we see it seems to be symptomatic, where if you get it, you know it. So if you were fine in the month after your IUD went in and you didn't feel sick, probably not PID related to the IUD. On the topic of IUDs, I feel like we've heard from a lot of moms in our moms episode and otherwise that um, as soon as you deliver, a nurse or a doctor will be like, what birth control do you, what do you want? What birth control do you want? Like, we don't want to go through this again. So all the, all the reps come in and they're like, I'm sure you don't want kids again. Here are your <laughs> options. <Yeah. laughs> um, and I, I feel like I remember someone saying that they got an IUD pretty soon after delivering. But then I've heard that you, your cervix is still dilated after you deliver, which is why you don't, you shouldn't have sex necessarily right away. I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out the timeline of when it's appropriate to, if you do want an IUD after you deliver, to have an IUD or what other options there are. So the time to talk about it is not in the delivery room with your legs and stirrups right after you just birthed a human being, okay? That's, Give me just, take it out, take it all out. Yeah, that's actually coercive because right then you could say anything to a pregnant woman to say, you don't want to go through this again. Like That's not a fair time to make that assessment. So Honestly, third trimester, 30, 32 weeks is around the time to start talking to your guy kind of soon about what now I got to I got to figure this out about what you might want to use after. And your fertility comes back after a baby sooner than you would expect. If you are not exclusively breastfeeding, which means babe on the breast all the time, you can ovulate in 21 days. No. Right? Kill me. How unfair is that? <laughs> I don't there think is... that is widely known or acknowledged. It's no. not known in the Irish community, I'll tell you that. Right <laughs> That's why they call them Irish twins. It is now. It took a while. It took quite a few generations. <laughs> so even though, like, one of the joys, I think, of being pregnant is that you actually don't need to worry about birth control when you're pregnant because, like, you're pregnant, right? Like, it's the one time in your life that you don't have to think about getting pregnant because you're already there. But so it also feels silly to talk about after. It's like, well, I'm going to have a baby. I don't know when I'm going to have sex again. Half of people will have sex in the first six weeks before they have that postpartum checkup. I know it's hard to imagine now or when thinking about delivery itself, 
But sometimes people are having less sex in the third trimester just because they're like a little less mobile in bed and it's they're feeling uncomfortable in their bodies and they can't even see past you know their belly. So once your belly gets flatter and all of a sudden you're feeling a little more like yourself, it's not uncommon to start having sex. So you get these two things happening where people start having sex and the ovaries are revving back up again. And right, and it's not just Irish who are like, wait a no. minute, this, this, this isn't supposed to happen. I just had one. Um, so it is an important conversation to have. And you could use almost every method of birth control right after the baby, not ones that have estrogen. So not most pills or the patch with a ring because you have a high risk of blood clots in the postpartum period and taking birth control would just make that risk too much. So anything without hormones, anything with just progestin, which is the hormone that doesn't cause blood clots. So some IUDs have just progestin, right? Yeah, the what? IUDs either have progestin only or nothing. So they're all but can you But can you get it in pretty much right away or is your cervix still dilated? Kate, I had my Mirena placed during my C-section. My baby came out, what? placenta out, IUD in. I talked the doctors through it because the docs had done it, had never done it. I'm behind the drape telling them exactly how to do it because I did not <laughs> want to leave that delivery room without wow. that IUD in me. Wow. <laughs> and it won't fall out? It won't fall out? No. I think I talked last time about how the vagina is like a sock without a foot, you know, and it kind of like collapses on itself whenever. The I, most yeah. sexy thing we've ever had <laughs> said on this podcast. Tubes, oxygen, Totally. So I, the uterus is not like this big empty room where the IUD is sort of, you know, moving around in there. It also flattens. So I like sure. to describe it as the uterus just hugs the IUD in place. Okay. Huh. Even if the cervix is, is dilated, it just holds it right in there. Wow. Oh. I've never had an IUD, so I'm, I, I was always a pill person. And clearly we weren't, you know, it, it, we didn't get pregnant on our own, you know, for a while. So I'm like, I don't know if I want to do an IUD, but I have to figure that out with my um what is the fastest you've ever seen a new mom get pregnant in the first month damn where like where they don't actually have a period their periods never came back but they're ovulating still but they ovulate because you know you ovulate and two weeks later you have your period so people who have gotten pregnant with the first ovulation after a baby I have um, a memory, and I can't remember if we talked about it on this pod or if it's just something I've heard amongst uh, mothers. Um, that is there any risk involved with getting pregnant so soon after giving birth? Like, I feel like I've heard that you should avoid it because it's riskier, or but maybe I'm misremembering that. Is it totes fine? <laughs> not really. No, you're not misremembering. Moms have a higher risk of pregnancy complications, and there are risks with the baby with low birth weight and preterm delivery and higher rates of mortality. I mean, most babies and most moms are totally fine after, but there is a higher risk of complications for both. The ideal window, you want to wait at least 18 months between delivery and conception. Um, not everyone waits that long, but the longer you wait, the lower your risks are. Hmm. Um, so this summer, like I said, I spent summer at home, which is in Southern California, and I got some melasma on my cheeks, um, which are brown spots, which are brought on by medication. I recently went on um, anti-anxiety medication, and I'm on birth control. Um, so if I'm on both of those medications, does is, is it like with each added medication, like 
my um my sensitivity of the sun goes up like if I were to stop taking birth control would the sensitivity go down probably okay not super well studied not shockingly right okay but we know that there is a risk with both medications. It may be additive in that sense that the more meds you're on, the higher the risk is. The worse is. it is, yeah. You may want to experiment with stopping one of them, probably the birth control. Yeah. Just, 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 just <laughs> if I see. had a choice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not really getting it on with my houseplants currently. So, um, But if, you're, if you did have to get it on, with which, which houseplant would it be? <laughs> I mean, the one I'm looking at right now is very nice and full. Um, it looks very strong. <laughs> Honestly, stop the birth control for now. See if, okay. it makes, see if it makes a difference. Okay. Especially because you're not super at risk right at this moment. Yeah, no, I'm not. But there's too many other options. Okay, cool. Unlo- Unlike anxiety meds where there's like talk therapy and that's about it. Right. But, but birth control, you've you got a menu to choose yeah, from. So that's true. Okay. Um. So back to the cervix because we did an oh, episode obs- on the cervix. Also, we're obsessed we're- with cervixes now. Cervixes are the coolest. I wrote a parody song to Britney Spears "Circus" and it it just it's always in my head. I, I hear the circus song and I can't even not hear cervix anymore. I um, I think we might change the name of the podcast to "Thank You for Your Cervix." Truly. It's Just do the, a whole yeah. season on the cervix. <laughs> um, but one thing uh, that we read about that I that I didn't actually read about, but one of the Megs brought it up, is that we've heard that um, having an orgasm while you're having sex opens up your cervix a little bit and makes uh, pregnancy more likely because the sperm could go in. Is that true? Do we know about Theoretically, yes. The cervix does dilate a little, plus there's uterine contractions. And the idea of it that sort of helps pull the sperm up towards the fallopes where the egg is waiting. Like jellyfish. Right. <laughs> but when you think about how many people get pregnant from bad sex where there is no orgasm oh, happening, no. It, I don't know how many more percentage points it gets you. I mean, I think getting pregnant from good sex is the best kind of you know, a pregnancy starting. But you know, if it happens, it happens. If God was a woman, that's how it would happen. But God is a yeah. man, so God is a man. <laughs> um, let's let's talk more about the cervix. Who else has questions about the cervix? I, I know you guys love the os. That you're just like obsessed yeah. with the os. <laughs> love. Let's talk about the os because that was gonna, that was a question okay. I had. Someone asked that question. So is it true uh, that um, it changes and you can tell if a patient has like had birth just based on what? The os and cervix look like it is true Woo-hoo! how so you cool. cannot tell if someone's a virgin right by looking at their vagina whether there's a hymen or not and that's that's all a myth but you can totally tell if someone's given birth through the cervix because it never quite goes back again you know it's it just of- becomes like a like a like a sad frown right <laughs> Oh, I think it more like a, a small, you know, the small smile emoji. Like not the really big. Down. Up- yeah. <laughs> like the little smile. Sure. And then be, like also looking at the cervix and the os, um, like you can tell where they're at in their cycle. That is less predictable. You know, some, 
some days you might be able to figure it out if you also if you've seen a patient for a long time and you know what her body looks like really well. Um, so I can't say like whenever I do speculum exams on people that I'm doing pap smears, like I can't like guess in my head where they are in their cycle. Well, so. Day 11 cervix right there. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, one other thing that I read about was cervicectomies and how people are able to still deliver if they've had had a cervicectomy there's now medical like advances but it sounds like that has to be a c-section if you don't have a cervix and you get pregnant you would have to deliver by c-section is that correct that was a little bit tricky when i heard that pod because cervixectomy is not actually a term that we use very much interesting so i was thinking so i always like try to translate the stuff that you guys find in your bleed search into like what i learned in my textbooks and in school and it's a science. That's fair. That's fair. Alternative science. That if you're having a procedure for abnormal PAPs, for abnormal cells, you know, like a precancerous condition, there are two procedures called a leap and a cone biopsy, which it's leap is like taking a melon baller to the cervix, right? It's like a scoop of cells out. And I, I know, like, enjoy your next picnic. Meg T. Shivers. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> And a cone biopsy is very similar where it's like an ice cream cone wedge that you take out. And what's amazing is that these procedures, which really do take care of all the precancerous cells for most people, the cervix just fills in the space. It grows back and it's like we were never there. It's magic. So your worship of the cervix, totally founded. It's amazing. And so you totally can get pregnant and have a baby the normal way after or you know, vaginally after one of these procedures. A tracheolectomy, which is the formal name for removal okay. of the whole cervix, yeah. is usually done for cancer. So yeah, not right. pre, but for cancer itself. Right. And it can be hard to get pregnant at all just through intercourse because sure. you know, body doesn't have the usual mechanisms. Whether or not you can then deliver vaginally probably depends on just how much tissue they took. And I think what they would do is kind of see what happens when you go through pregnancy, as you start to go through labor, and if it's kind of all scarred down, it isn't really working, maybe a C-section. But I don't know if we have a lot of history of people getting pregnant after cervical cancer to really have good recommendations on what happens. And I think it's a really individual basis. Cool, thank you. Interesting. Um, let's see. Oh, can a menstrual cup pull out your IUD? Have you ever seen that happen? Yes. <laughs> yes. And at first, we thought it was that when you were closing the cup, that you were pinching the strings and pulling it out. Because I've had patients who have taken tampons out manually, people who don't use the strings but who sort of go in after it have grabbed the strings accidentally and pulled. But we actually now, I know, but we now actually think that the menstrual cup is exerting a bit of a vacuum and you're at a higher risk of the IUD expelling even without pinching the strings and doing it yourself. So a paper is actually coming out in the next six months or so with the first report of, which we saw this in a trial that we're doing. So the paper is going to come out to say, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't use a menstrual cup with an IUD, but you need to be counseled that a cup and an IUD may not be a good combo. Wow. I love my menstrual cup. I don't want it to hurt me. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think you could break the suction, but if you think about it, the cup is always exerting a little bit of suction while it's staying in there. And the IUD, again, doesn't have a lot of things holding it in place. And so we think that that little bit of constant suction, oh, maybe so just it's sort not of- just taking the menstrual cup out, it's just the constant- what? Wow. Pulling it down. Right. That's it's just a warm hug. You know what I mean? It's just the uterus <laughs> it's hugging. It's a warm hug. It's not a bear <laughs> hug. <laughs> Kate, I feel like you're going to choose your menstrual cup over an IUD. I might. I love my menstrual cup so much. Tell Carl um, to wrap it up. I know. We might just do that for a while. We'll figure <laughs> it out. Um, or pull it out. Yeah. Yeah. Or we should talk about Fexi, the new birth control that's out. Excuse so- me? Uh-huh. What is it? Okay. So spermicides get a bad rap because they're all minoxidil 9, the chemical that's sometimes loaded onto, onto uh, condoms. And they can be kind of caustic. And we know that actually if you use spermicide too much, it actually increases your risk of getting an STI. But there is a brand new vaginal product that was just approved in the last two months called Fexi, P-H-E-X-X-I. And it's Cute. not- it sounds right. super sexy. Right. <laughs> uh, wait, well, wait till you hear a category. It's Uh-oh. not a spermicide. It's a vaginal pH modulator, which Ooh. sounds like something out of the Jetsons. And the idea behind it is that it changes the pH in the vagina, which is toxic to sperm. And it's really natural. It's lactic acid, phosphoric acid, these natural oh. kind of occurring substances, right, that aren't caustic, don't hurt the vagina at all and might be really effective contraception. Right now, it looks like 86% in typical use could be 93% effective with perfect use, but it is another option for people who don't want to go on hormonal methods, don't want a device placed. That's great. Cool. That sounds awesome. awesome. I mean, how resourceful are our bodies? It's like there's so many ways that we can like make things work. It is amazing. And when you think about what we do to it with not necessarily having great diets, not necessarily exercising enough, the environmental hazards, like we are putting our bodies through so much and yet they still do all this for us. It's amazing. So cool. I love her so much. I just love her. I love her. I wish she was an app. Uh, <laughs> I wish instead of Siri. Hey, Dr. Kate. Yeah. Hey, Dr. Hey, Dr. Kate. Kate. Can you check out this coloring for me? <laughs> hey, Dr. Kate. What's that cervix? (laughs) We've been over this. One of my students does that with OK Google. So I told her we might have a new student from Guatemala. And she goes, OK Google, what's Guatemala? (laughs) (laughs) What's Guatemala Guatemala? is so good. It's like, OK, I'm glad you're curious. Um, OK. One time, Grady, my nephew, uh, they use OK Google for music. And so they'll be like, okay, Google, play, you know, NPR or whatever music. And during Christmas when he was like maybe like one and a half or two and a half or something, he goes, okay, Google, play Bingle Bells. (laughs) Bingle Bells. And I'm like, no one tell him. No one correct him. No one tell him it's Jingle. It's Bingle from now on. (laughs) Anyway, um, Dr. Kate, we love you. There's more coming next episode, so stay tuned. Um, but should we do a read my labia? Read my labia. Read my labia. Read my labias. 
what? noise. Monster labias. Wow. <laughs> he does have some monster um, labias right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. My labias are just fine. I mean, they're getting ready to push out, you know. A human. A human, so. Le- well, while I'll start because mine's about that. It's a labia. It's a read my labia menorah. It's not. It's just it's a little thing that's being getting under my skin. Um, you know how I feel like, like there's just a way that pediatricians and doctors and nurses kind of talk about delivery, which is very like flowers and rainbows and like calm voices. And, you know, Carl and I have been doing a lot of online classes that then you follow up with a doctor or you follow up with a nurse and, um, we're, you know, encountering a lot of amazing nurses and a lot of amazing people that are helping us understand what we're about to go through. But I have to just say, read my labia menorah. I really can't stand the way people refer to your baby as baby. Oh, when they're God. just like baby. When baby's oh, born, no. baby's going to want to be swaddled. No. And baby is going to need to breastfeed eight to 12 times a day. And it's just, can you just say your baby or the baby or her or him or they like, it's just, it's just, I don't know why it irritates me so bad. Cause it also usually happens with that calm it's voice. Cutesy. It's like, that's why it's yeah. too cutesy. cutesy. It's, and it's like, it's sort of like this accepted thing across all, like we've had British doctors, Irish nurses, mm. like that have been on these zoom calls and they all just say baby, like baby's going to need baby loves when you skin to skin baby. It's like, yeah. Oh, yeah. so, um, and I catch myself doing it now. I'm like, no, my baby, <laughs> her, like it, it, like anything but baby. <laughs> cause it's nice that, cause, uh, cause it always irks me when I read, um, cause I do a lot of articles, read a lot of articles about cat behavior and, um, <laughs> I'm pretty cool. I'm pretty cool. Why um, would you they- tell us that? <laughs> <laughs> so much <Listeners> fodder <laughs> um but they always uh uh one uh, they always just assume that the cat is female they're always just like when if she's doing this then she wants this and if she and i'm like every article i read is like that it's, i'm like okay so that's weird. weird um but it is it's nice that they're like maybe inadvertently they're being gender neutral but when it's cutesy, like, I don't think that's actually why they're doing yeah. it. They're doing it because it's like. The, your, yeah, your baby, the baby. Like, that's, I don't know. It just, it's just weird to me. And I think it is because it's also accompanied by this very, like, sweet demeanor. I don't know that it's like, and I just have a lot of, a lot of uh, pent up anxiety right now. So anything that makes me slightly uncomfortable, I'm like, a, no. You're not, a, you're not a cutesy person. You're just yeah. like, okay, just yeah. give it to me straight. You need, you don't need to like beat around the cutesy bush. When the big old yeah. head you're like, is getting into position. Tell me if my chain's going <laughs> to yeah. explode. That's what I want to yeah. know. <laughs> is baby going to explode my vagina? <laughs> So baby's head is going to rip your vagina to your anus. <laughs> and baby is okay with that. <laughs> and this is a way of baby giving you a little kiss before it meets oh your God. face. <laughs> anyway, that's my read my labia nice. menorah. Good one. Good. Um, my read my labia is all this hullabaloo uh, about Harry Styles cover on Vogue. Don't know mm-hmm, if y'all heard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No. No, I haven't. I'm out of the loop. He's in a dress. He's been gender bender fashioning for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think 
I think I read that he's actually the first man to be on the cover of Vogue. What? Apparently that's a thing. No. Really? I, I believe it. Who else? Yeah, who else would have been? I know. Anyone. <laughs> I don't I think, know. Because I think Vogue has always been like women's fashion. They're really like, we're for the ladies. Um, but yeah, and then he's his photo shoot is like him wearing, you know, feminine clothing. Um, so naturally, uh, because this is the most important thing to be talking about, so many conservative pundits are like this is an attack on masculinity oh my god and there's like a woman being like we need manly men like this is important and i'm like ugh. so that's eye rolly and cringy but then so one person who spoke out was ben shapiro because everyone wants to know what ben shapiro has to say (laughs) um that guy (laughs) i don't know where he came from i don't know why people started listening to him um all of a sudden all i know is that his stuff gets shared so much um but uh so he said something like the the left knows that this is an attack on masculinity men are taught to be strong because that's needed in society or something and everyone was like so you're saying that men are taught this and that it's actually arbitrary um so that's been fun but then I gotta say people on the other side are like especially towards Ben Shapiro being super shitty and being like you're five three like you're a piece of shit look there's a bitch you kind of have boobs or emasculating him yes yeah Yeah. and I'm like okay well that's also like can we please just take people's like appearance out of any conversation it's always your brain is wrong yeah nothing else yeah your brain is dumb and you're dumb (laughs) the internet can never fully deliver without just being degrading and horrible in some way the like Hey, you racist! See you next Tuesday. I want to rape right. you in a street. Like, okay, well, okay. racist was Whoa. enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got the picture. You don't right. need to continue just because there's like unlimited amount of characters or whatever. <laughs> you can well, the- just stop at racist. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to find the tweet, but I I couldn't. I sat this morning. But there, the, my favorite tweet about it though was a woman <laughs> responding saying. Um, Everyone's up in arms about this Harry Styles cover and they think we're celebrating it and getting excited about it because it's like gender bender. But no, we're just excited because it's really fucking hot. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's just hot in a dress. Like, what's the big deal? Yeah. yeah so anyway, J- Jacob um, Tovia, I think is how you pronounce mm. their name. They were like, my sexual orientation is currently Harry Styles. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <That's> so cute. <laughs> This is what happens when I go on maternity leave and I'm not clued into the Welcome news. Welcome to being so, a mom. You're going to be like, miss- Harry who? <laughs> Harry Hamlin? <laughs> He's still a thing. You're going to become an 80s mom. <laughs> <laughs> You're just going to regress back to being like. Oh, you know who I love? Tom Skerritt. I just adore that Tom Skerritt. <laughs> uh, All right, May. Hey, what's Good your read, my labia. Thank that was a good one. Mine will be short. Um, just commenting on what people eat and thinking that it's any of your mm. business. And, mm. you know, fat phobia is difficult because it's toxic for everyone. Like, mm-hmm. even skinny people deal with fat phobia and it's terrible for everyone. But it especially sucks when you are fat or chubby because yep. then people feel the need to... Um, monitor and take care of you because they're afraid you're going to like 
drop dead because <laughs> your fatness is just gonna squeeze all your organs, take you over, and like they'll Akira. come out of all your orifices. <laughs> Um, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what people think is going to happen to me if I eat sure. a bagel. But apparently they have things to say. <laughs> but they saw something on the Twitter that made it sound like this is pretty dire. Yeah. So just <sighs> I'll keep it general. But, you know, it's just like with white supremacy. Obviously, it's the worst for people that it was created to oppress. But it's not good for anyone because it creates this false sense of superiority just like fat phobia does it's like skinny people don't equal healthy right and that there's one correct thing that everyone should be vying for with white supremacy it's everyone should be white right (laughs) no problem (laughs) no problem um yeah so i'm just kind of dealing with that which sucks um i'm sorry i hate that yeah it sucks but that is i will say one positive Maybe the only positive about Instagram is just being able to, like, find whatever representation Mm. you're looking for. You're just like, I need to see pictures of beautiful fat women. And then you get to see it. Yeah. You know? You aren't delivered Cosmo Girl magazines that, you know, only have one kind of person in it. Mm -hmm. So thanks, Instagram. Thanks, IG. You're slowly poisoning the world, but (laughs) you're also helping. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us for part one of Dr. Kate. Please come back next week where we will continue our conversations all about vagina havers, vulva havers, uterus havers. Or I don't know, maybe you don't have your uterus anymore or you never did, but you should still tune in because you'll be answering all your burning vagina questions about your or someone else's burning vagina. Uh, Please follow us on the Instagram. We have a great time over there. Like and subscribe. Is that what we do here? Or is that just on YouTube? I don't know. Like us, rate us. That's what it was. Smash smash (laughs) the button. Is that what we're supposed to say? Smash the button. (laughs) Click here. I'm pointing below my face. (laughs) But anyways. Pointing to my my face. (laughs) You know the drill. And until next time. Keep going. And bleed Bleed everywhere. everywhere.